Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. Yes, I'm Rob McLeod. As you can hear, joined by the friendly and vocal Brendan O'Leary. Today, the two of us are discussing student government and agency in mainstream schools. How are you, Brendan? Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. You know the song? That is Alice Cooper's School's Out for Summer. True. If you're new to us and you're thinking, what is a mainstream school? Brennan, where can people go in this episode or outside of this episode? So I believe we got ourselves a, a tag right on the end that can give you the skinny on what we mean with our three types of school, saying no more. End, meaning the end of this episode. The last five minutes of this episode have our introduction to our model of what we're talking about with traditional mainstream and progressive schooling. Or episode 50. Or you can go around to Rob's house. He lives at number one, Belgique Avenue, Brussels. And he'll give you, the, he'll give you a 20-minute uh, espresso, espresso shot of everything you need to know. Today, we're focusing in on the mainstream approach to student government and agency. To kind of lay our table out, let's go back. Let's look at what traditional approaches to student government and agency might look like. And then uh, introduce a new model, a ladder model, for today. So Brennan, traditional student governments or schools that are traditional leaning, what do their student governments look like? And what's the like approach or philosophy around student agency? So it's interesting when we originally did this and we just, the idea of student agency just didn't even come onto the radar when we were looking at traditional schools. And it was only as we started to think about, um, student government in mainstream schools that we even thought, oh, this is actually more about what kids can do and are allowed to do. Because in the traditional school, it's quite a ceremonial kind of thing. You're chosen to represent your class. Sometimes you'll have a little pin or something to denote that you're part of the student government. And that, you know, is a notion of pride. It's a notion of your responsibility. Um, Often those, those student governments, if they even exist, are very teacher-centered. So maybe the representatives are chosen by teachers. Maybe the uh, meetings are chaired essentially by teachers and they kind of decide what's on the, on the agenda. Um, and, and often the kind of choices that the student government can make is, is really quite limited, especially with the ages where we deal with a lot, which is primary and middle school. It's quite maybe centered around what is the theme of an event or how we decorate it or what kind of drinks and snacks might we, we have? What are we going to sell at the bake sale? And maybe they have some choice over a few um, new piece of playground equipment, some new balls or, or scooters or, or things such as, as this. Um, so at the end of the day, if there is a student government in traditional schools, they are still teacher-centered. There's, there, there's not a lot of power delegated over to the students, and that's something we'll see change as we move over into the mainstream. Well, I guess, yeah, let's start there with this idea of the mainstream, and then I'd like to get into the, the latter system to kind of use it to contrast the two. So mainstream, we're shifting into this idea of a teacher as coach, student as athlete kind of model away from this master and apprentice type of thing. So traditional master knows best. Here in the coach, we're kind of like 
giving more of the power over to the students. So we're still going to see class representatives, but these class representatives may have individually chosen that they wish to be part of the school council. In addition, they probably were voted on by their class as a whole. The meetings themselves, once those students get to the level of the student government, the meetings that they're in are actually chaired by the students. So rather than the traditional teacher overseeing everything that's going on and bringing the agenda and moving things on and all this sort of stuff, there's actually more kind of like a, a parliament, I guess you could say, with the students in terms of the government, their representation and, and who's chairing some of these types of things. So the students also act as a path of communication from their classes to this kind of whole school space to discuss what it is that students want. So sometimes you've heard them referred to as class representatives, sometimes they're class speakers, this sort of thing. They're representing the voice of their class. You mentioned in traditional, the emphasis is the agency that they have is on details. So, you know, what colors will the decorations be? You know, what treats will we have at the bake sale? Here it zooms out a little bit more and it might be like, okay, not what colors do we want, but what theme will this be? What kind of food do we want? Do we want to have a bake sale? These sorts of things, like the actual structural and organizational decision-making can be turned over to the student government here. So there's more input that's going on. And the teacher's role here isn't the kind of delegator as it was in the traditional approach. In the mainstream approach, a teacher who is involved with the student council is acting more like a coach and is trying to coach the group to implement the ideas that they're bringing up. Yes, they will still take on a lot of the responsibility and bring their expertise in terms of organizing these things. But ultimately, they're trying to kind of work and bring out skills, talents, capacities, the potential of the student government. So those are the differences between traditional and mainstream on kind of the, the details level. But Brennan, you introduced this idea of the kind of eight or nine rung ladder of student agency. And I thought this is a really good uh, tool to kind of look at our own schools and where there is student agency, what kind of agency is it? Yes. Yeah, so like I said earlier, once we started to look at the notion of a student government, beyond its ceremonial position, you then begin to talk about something that becomes more and more important as you move towards, uh, through mainstream education and towards progressive education, not, not that one is better than the other, but in terms of the amount of agency and freedom and choice that students give, each one of those puts more focus on it. So the traditional has very little student choice and agency, but as you move into the mainstream, they begin to get some. It's a part of the of the the DNA of of the mainstream kind of culture. This kind of these enlightenment values of of um, democracy and and equality and and freedom. That but we've got we're in this strange position where they are still children. So they're playing in kind of a limited scope with what the schools will allow them to do. And then as you move more into progressive education, there's more and more 
center on the choices that the students make, which again brings with it real challenges because they are children. But so sociologist uh, Roger Hart, back in the 90s, this was for originally in 1992, um, as part of UNICEF, he, he wrote a book called Children's Participation, the Theory and Practice of Involving Young Citizens in Community Development and Environmental Care. And basically he came up with this idea called the ladder of children's participation. There's eight rungs of the ladder and the bottom three are essentially non-participation at all. So the first one is just pure manipulation. Like you're just telling the, the students exactly where to go and what to do. And maybe if you've ever seen like really small children doing a, like a play performance or singing on the stage, they're told where to stand, they're told when to sing, and they're just basically, they're totally just following the instructions of the, um, of the adults. You get to the second rung where the young people are kind of decoration. Again, those kind of early childhood kind of um, uh, Christmas shows might be an example of that potentially. And then you get up to the third rung where young people are in the decisions, but they're tokenistic. They're not, there's kind of one student representative and they're not really taking part in any meaningful decisions. So, you know, sometimes a school will bring out a, a single student rep on something, but then they're not actually taking any meaningful part in the decision-making process. So these three, the manipulation, the decoration, the tokenism kind of rungs, our heart says these are more or less non-participation. What we then get to is what we described maybe in some of the um, traditional school kind of practices, and they still carry on into some of the mainstream where the fourth rung of the ladder of participation, young people are, they're assigned to jobs. And so they're informed of what they should, should do, but basically they're given an assignment. And I think that's what you might see a little bit more in a traditional school and traditional student government. Okay, we want you to make the decorations for this event. We want you to set up this, these tables for this. We want you to make some posters or whatever. I think you begin in the mainstream to get into rung five where young people are consulted on things and they're informed. One of the things that you might see happening um, in some schools is that uh, the student government is talking to the head and leadership team and they're actually giving them advice on some things that, are, that matter to students. Now, again, these are somewhat limited, but it might be to do with break times. Sometimes if there's a new hire, if they're hiring a new vice principal or you know a, a particular teacher, they might have student representatives on the board where they actually, the leadership team will listen to their opinions. And, and that's more or less, I think, what you're seeing in some of the student government in the mainstream school. They're consulted on things, they're informed, and then even going to the next rung, which is um, rung six, where decisions are still adult initiated. So maybe the, the, the student government will, will still require the teacher who's leading to say, okay, we're going to do this event, or you have some money to spend on charity, you can buy this equipment but um, they'll share decisions together. So throughout it, they might say, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more because both of us have run student government, but you know, when we ran it, it was begins to get into this, uh, oh, no, okay, some of the ideas are coming from us, some are coming from you, but at the end of the day, we're, dis we're sharing some of those decisions together. 
still may be initiated by by um, the adults and that sixth rung. You get to the seventh rung of the ladder. Now you get them into where the, the, the young people are leading and initiating that action. So the teacher is now starting to take a, a step back. The adults are they're still there. They're still monitoring. But essentially, the, the student government is coming in. They're making their decisions and then they're initiating their actions. And I think that's the best you can kind of hope for in a mainstream school where they're coming in, they're bringing ideas in from their class. Maybe we want to raise some money for charity. Maybe we want to promote this particular notion of well-being in our school. Maybe we want to put a sports tournament on or something like that. Again, you probably noticed not a lot of this is directly related to the teaching and learning the curriculum, which is at the core of the mainstream, but still they're making these decisions that are important to, to students. One of the things the kids did when I ran student government was they decided to buy plants for every class in the school every classroom in the school so they did their you know they brought this idea in they initiated it they took the lead and I was kind of helping them to facilitate that the top rung the rung eight which your mainstream school would rarely get to is that young people and adults are sharing those decision making so it's like it's a democratic process at every step I think you start to see this more when you get into more progressive schools but as we said even with kids it's really difficult even when you start looking at student governments with the uh, high schools and universities to actually turn over any meaningful decision-making power especially over the curriculum or where large amounts of funding is is um that's where things get contentious in student governments and universities and so on you know we work with much younger kids so we're never really having those discussions too much but just to go through that one more time, so you've got the manipulation down on rung one, young people are decoration on rung two, they're tokenized on rung three. When you get to rung four, they're assigned and informed of things. You get to rung five, young people are consulted and they're informed on what, what is happening. And then six, seven, and eight, they're, this, they're, they're the, the part that really have you know, meaningful participation where rung six, the adults are initiating, but the decisions are shared. Rung seven, the young people are leading and initiating the actions. And then when you get to eight, it's a full-on democracy where the adults and the, and the students are actually sharing those meaningful decisions. Yeah. And I guess um, by rung eight, what we're saying is essentially an adult's voice and a student's voice are completely equal on a decision. Is that fair to say by rung eight? And kind of before that, it's sort of variations of how close we are to that or how far we are away from that. Yeah. And that participation is, is a key word. So, you know, we talk about progressive schools being about inclusion and being able to bring yourself. And basically that's the line you're seeing in this particular area that we're looking at this week you're looking at students being able to participate more and more in a meaningful way on a bigger level. In some of the progressive schools, they will take a vote on new staff, for example. So the student government and the teachers will, will um, interview, and then there will be a full-on democratic vote. Now, again, what that really looks like in the real world will come to in however many episodes time when we, we get to that. But in a mainstream school, you're never really going to get to that. We're talking about them making decisions that might have a little bit of money behind it. They might be investing in a, a certain equipment or events that might cost, or but 
you know, we're, we're still um, down in that sixth, maybe rung where the adults or the kids might initiate it. But at the end of the day, they're not making the final big decisions. So if we keep that as sort of our dashboard to look back at what we discussed about the criteria of a mainstream approach to student government and agency, here are some of the babies or the good things about this mainstream approach to student government. So first of all, you actually get to represent your opinions and get some things done that you want. So like we said, in the traditional, it's going to be much more the teacher's it's almost like the reverse action now that I'm thinking of it. It's sort of like the teacher as the head of the student council might be representing the school leadership or the rest of the staff's voice of like, hey, we need some of these things. Can you bring that to the student council to make sure it gets done? Like almost in some way transforming some of the duty into having the, uh, the student council take care of it. And it's kind of like the head of student council is delegating and assigning and informing what needs to happen. Whereas here in the mainstream, you know, in theory, for in kind of rungs five through six, maybe even up to seven, we're having the voice of the students be brought up to kind of a representative uh, student. And then they are representing that voice onto the, you know, teacher or teachers involved in the student council to, to you know, be able to look at how are we going to get these things done. It mirrors like high responsibility. So it's an opportunity for students to experience responsibility. And yet it's still a safe way to get experience. So in a mainstream student council, it's a good way to practice some of those skills and have an opportunity to develop your leadership abilities. And at the end of the day, you know, the teacher is still there to make sure that nothing becomes too high stakes. Or if things don't go exactly as planned, you know, there'll be some learning from it, but it's not hugely consequential. You're not out in the real world yet where you've, you know, thrown your life savings and your, the money your grandma gave you into a startup and then it fails and all that cash is gone type of a thing. It's like there's a safe way to get experience here as part of the student council, which is cool. We, we looked into... Um university student governments and some of the people who went on um, to become prime ministers and presidents and uh, leaders in their field who um, were heads of the student government. I remember Halle Berry and Hillary Clinton were two that, um, that stood out to me, but I think uh, it, it is a, a great way. My daughter's been in the student government every year for four, like four or five years. I'm sure she's manipulating the vote to get in every year. She was, I know what else wanted it or I got the vote. But she, she, she really does see it as a way to, um, to, to practice getting, getting these kind of like, um, you know, uh, learning how to structure her ideas and get them kind of implemented. And um you can see the drive in her eyes. So I see firsthand as a parent that um, it does give people that kind of experience. She's not Halle Berry or Hillary Clinton just yet. Who knows, one day. The decisions that the students are making as well, the cool part here is that they're like in alignment with their interests. So, you know, if you look at like a primary student government, a, a student government in a primary school that, you know, you and I have been involved with, 
it's like, what are the most common topics from school to school around the world? Well, it's like new equipment, fun events, you know, and doing something for charity, doing something like, you know, with a more global focus. So those kinds of interests are brought into the space and students are given some agency around things that, you know, are of interest and do impact their lives on a daily basis. I mean, recess, what's out on the schoolyard, what's available during your free choice time. Why wouldn't you want to be able to maximize that? So that's cool. Uh, the ability to advise uh, and choose new staff. We wrote choose in quotation marks for the reason that you highlighted a moment ago. Yes, quite possibly if there's new staff or you know a new head of school, these kinds of things, the student government might be brought in to get have a chance to interview and and to offer some of their feedback. Now, whether or not their vote is given the same percentage of weight as anybody else, that's up for debate and you know comes into which rung of the ladder is your school operating from. But I can pretty much guarantee you at a traditional school, you're not going to see, you know, students' opinion on new staff being of any concern, probably whatsoever. And finally, allows for some success and some failure. As I was saying, it's a safe way to get some experience, and it's a safe way to get the kinds of experience you're probably not going to get in many other areas of your life at that age, like with your friends and things like that. This is a chance for you to negotiate to engage with, to persuade those in authority. And like we said, it's it's a fairly safe way to get that kind of experience. So those are the good things. Brennan, if we shift over to the bathwater, the not so good things about a mainstream approach to student government and their concept of agency, what would we say here? Well, I'm going to say the thing we think almost every week because it's really the strongest argument that the progressive school makes against the mainstream is that you're you're letting kids do these things and make these choices but the choices you're giving them are so limited at best you know you're letting them advise you on things or you you're maybe even letting them make completely uninformed decisions as in we're going to save the planet by having a bake sale and it's like you in a progressive school you would spend more time on discussing or working out whether that was a meaningful type of action is that the best type of action we can take for our community if we raise a couple of hundred dollars is there something that we could spend that couple of hundred dollars on in our community that would have more meaning and make more change? Or at least just be informed about the decisions you're making. So those, again, the true criticisms that, you know, the kids are not making meaningful decisions and the decisions they're making are not particularly discussed or informed. It's just this little walled garden. It's kind of like a simulation or a practice rather than letting them experience the, the, the real-world decision-making. One of the ways it can go wrong as well, you know, and a mainstream school might criticize itself on this, is that this kind of, um, it can lead to a toxic kind of hierarchy. The people who are in the student government might 
then be able to push through what they want or they might be able to see themselves then as having more importance than the other kids in the class and this could be a you know a kind of toxic competition especially around the time of um, of voting and they like um there's a couple of movies i can't remember the name of the movie this is a great one that's based around this idea um of um like two kids that are trying to go for student government and they're just the, the most kind of like toxic kind of like mudslinging kind of idea it's a common trope there's a great episode of community where they do it and uh I think um, Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite does a good version of it too, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but it's a common trope, and there's some truth in it. You know, it can lead to this horrible, toxic kind of like situation. Uh, or you might just not get the person who's representing your your needs that you get you put the wrong person in charge someone who's selfish and they come they're only ever talking about what they want and pushing their ideas through they're not really representing the uh will of the people shall we say <laughs> you might argue that uh, those kind of flaws follow through to the larger areas of democracy but who who am i to say well thing and there's always the issue with government and elected positions there's always two games and the first game is the get elected game and the second game is the how well can you do the uh, leadership and executing what you said you would do game and the problem is you only find out how well someone does at the second game if they've won the first game so you get that mismatch of the person who's maybe not the most popular and maybe isn't the one who can run the best election maybe they are the one who would have done a much better job, but you don't get to know that because, you know, in a perfect world, you get the person who is good at the election game and good at the leadership game, but you run into this game theory problem of, well, at best, it's going to be the person who is best at the, at the voting game, and then we hope they were also the best at the following through game. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing, um, Nixon and Kennedy first televised debate uh, all of those kind of things it keeps coming back the movie i was referring to earlier is called election and it's um reese witherspoon and matthew broderick from um 1999 it's, i remember it being quite funny but yeah those are the kind of things that we want to avoid so we want the right person voted and we want the right person who's going to represent our ideas and be uh, good and true and honest and um the traditional school might be against this notion of student government or be very nervous on where the line was on decision making so really keep you know really keeping the ability to make decisions um in the pocket of the teachers it's like you know a strong grip on you know what money can be spent and how can it be spent and planning things far far in in um advance and at the end of the day and we say this every week, we're trying not to strawman the, the idea of the traditional school. And of course, no school is 100% like this, but the teacher more or less just allowing the kids to kind of role play this idea, but the traditional teacher basically still making even the most minute of decisions. And I guess that's the, the traditional school might be very nervous of um, and again, maybe speaking from experience, the few times I've run student governments and I've run it in more than one school, there were people, you know, 
in some of those schools at certain times who were nervous about the amount of um, decision-making students were allowed to have. I think we ran, a, my kids decided to run a, an event, which they'd kind of um, designed from scratch and then put in place. And, and it did involve like the school taking a few hours off timetable and things like that. And there was some nervousness from certain parties, some parents, some teachers, you know, is this a good use of our time? Is it going to work? And then and the hardest thing for me was to kind of remain that balance of like, I've got to be close enough on this to allow them to make some actual real decisions, but not really allow the whole thing to, to go off the, off the edge of the cliff. And, um, you know, there were a few points where I just had to kind of step in a little bit, but then I was able to kind of step back. And that was a, very much on my mind. I think that's, that's the mainstream model. Well, and I think what you're describing there is that coach mentality of finding the zone of proximal development. And I think there's like two things happening there on an X and Y axis. It's like, how much agency can I provide them with? I'll do my best to maximize that, but only as long as that amount of agency is met with their level of competency. So if I do give them this much agency, do they have the capacities or abilities to follow through and execute on those things? And if not, that's where I need to step in as the coach and take a few weights off and maybe do a few reps myself. You know, if that is the aim or scale back the agency or these sorts of things, I think what we see with the student council is it, the staff that are involved are acting as a coach, trying to find that optimal zone of proximal development. Yeah, it's kind of the sandbox idea. You can go here to the edge, but the, you know, we're still kind of, you know, you're still in a little bit of a walled garden a, a idea. And there were some things that were just totally off bounds that I think in a more progressive school would have been open to negotiation. The amount of time to go off timetable or to, you know, how much money was spent or what was actually the content of some of the events, you know, I think we've said this many times before with mainstream school, as long as it doesn't get too far in the way of the curriculum, a lot of this is allowed. But as soon as it starts to step on the toes of, of the teaching and learning, the very directed teaching and learning that's leading you towards the long-term goal of those uh, standardized tests, those qualifications, as soon as things start to impede on that. So if the student government, you know, wants to do an event for an afternoon, maybe we can, we can maybe squeeze that. They want to do it every afternoon for like three weeks. No way. Whereas you can see in some progressive schools that would at least be on the table. So it is, you know, still this um, very much controlled and very much the curriculums hanging there behind you, uh, and as soon as that's threatened, I think uh, that puts a, a, a pretty strong block on on what is allowed. I'd, I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear as much as you'd like to tell me about your experience of student government in the many schools you've worked in. Well, as a student, I did run in high school for a position in the student government and lost. I did not get a place in the student government, so I've experienced the sadness, the deprivation of the opportunity to participate in this. As a teacher leading it, I, I helped a little bit with one in Canada, but I was more there as just sort of an assistant and checking out what was going on and stuff like that. I wouldn't say I was an integral part of it. 
And then later on, yeah, I think two, possibly three years, at least two years anyways, um, helped with the student government. I'd say I was trying to bring what I would call post-progressive principles to it, but arguably I think I was doing somewhere between a mainstream and progressive approach um, in terms of the student council where, if I remember correctly, I think the school would allow one boy and one girl, this is in a primary school set up, one boy, one girl, and um, the classes had to decide on that. And I don't think it was my own difficulties of not getting to participate, but I didn't see necessarily a purpose in restricting it to just that, because I did see, and this might be the mainstream part of me, I saw a lot of students who were eager and interested to be involved in the student government who just didn't get picked because maybe, you know, there were three or four other standout students in their class. And it's like, oh, well, why, why can these three people not participate when they're eager, enthusiastic to do it and they would be great at it. And, you know, just, I will strum in from it and let's pretend from another class and there was nobody who was, you know, at their level. Nobody cutting, cutting, the, making the grade. Nobody cutting. Yeah the same, that same kind of level that they would have been at. So for me, I made it much more inclusive and it was like, okay, well, we'll meet the standard that yes, one boy, one girl will tick that box from the administrative level, but there's no rule saying we can't have more than that. So we'll take the, you know, two students from each class and anyone else who wants to come in as well, they're welcome to do that. And then, you know, we had a much larger student count, student council than previously and we just broke it up into a lot of smaller teams where we said, okay, what are the things you guys want to focus on? Okay, we've got kind of an outdoor committee. We've got an event committee. We've got a fundraising committee. We've got a feedback to the school committee, these sorts of things. Um, you know, we set up some objectives for each that they were interested in. And then I kind of worked to some degree to help coach and facilitate to make sure they knew the kind of meaningful next steps. And my first year, I'd say I probably leaned more towards um, the post-progressive approach of being okay with some of these things not going well and allowing them to fail and me not stepping in to solve problems. And, you know, for example, there is one example of a, a dance that the students wanted to organize, but they didn't actually want to organize a dance. What they wanted to do was pick music they wanted, they, dance. they wanted a dance, but they didn't want to organize a dance. <laughs> and so that was interesting because, you know, we had the discussions and we kind of set up some goals and, you know, the few students weren't following through on any of the goals, but they'd already gone ahead and done all the fun parts to get ready for it. But none of the like difficult the parts that, were made. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but, and had chosen the music and the games and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, cool. But we're missing all of the things that need to be organized for those fun things to happen. And in the end, they didn't follow through. And in the end, we had to cancel it and call it off. And then we had like a fantastic discussion <laughs> talking about why it didn't work and great self-reflection. And uh, they set a smaller goal. We worked up to that. And then we ended up having a dance again later in the year, applying what we'd learned. Now, the second year I did it, I was, I think, a little bit more 
stepping in and doing more of the coaching and that sort of a thing. But that first year, I was willing to let things fail and not work if if uh, students were scaffolded for things and they didn't follow through on it, which is, I guess, the one piece we haven't quite gotten to is just also motivation. I guess just that kind of inner will to follow through on things. We've kind of talked about here, oh, you bring an idea and it gets discussed and then it goes and happens. Well, it's like, yes, and there's still you know, that kind of upper left quadrant of the beliefs and the interests and the reactions. And it's like, eh, but if you're bored about doing certain parts of it, these things aren't going to, that can all fall apart if you're not motivated to actually do the stuff, even if you've got a great plan. That's the, uh, you know, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration kind of idea. And that that's interesting when we look at the age we work with like primary, upper primary, um, Arguably, on a personal level, there's still, and we talk about the development of the individual themselves kind of mirrors those three types of schools. So younger children are actually more in line with the, those traditional values anyway. They, they, they're still um, very much beholden to authority and hierarchy and their, their, their duty of what they have to do. And we're in this kind of thing where they're starting to move more into this mainstream thing of like equality and equity and democracy, but they haven't maybe quite got that idea that, yeah, that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. It's, you know, it's kind of like you want the dance. Yeah, you can have it. Great. A lot of that stuff might not be that much fun to put in place, but we're going to support you and scaffold you and help you with it. But if we're being really honest, even as mainstream educators, you ain't going to make it if you don't do this, this, and this. If I start to step in and do all those things for you that are in your p- potential zone of development or something that you actually just totally could do comfortably, but you're not, you're not doing it to get the job done, then I'm really not helping you as the coach because I'm just doing something for you that you can do for yourself. And that kind of goes against the mainstream values. But, you know, at the end of the day, we live in the real world and sometimes those things do happen. And then whether or not it goes ahead or doesn't go ahead, we have the discussion, we learn from it, we move on, we reflect, which again is part of the mainstream in its most positive is that you set goals for yourself. And if you make them, great. And if you don't, you reflect on them and you look at how you can maybe... um, you know, change the goal or address the goal better next time. Those are a few anecdotes from me. You've mentioned a few things from your experience already. Any other little gems or shall we wrap up there? No, I think basically what I, what I learned was it mirrored how I ran an inquiry based classroom in some ways. So how the most successful times that I think I've been able to oversee a student government actually looked very much like this kind of IB style inquiry-based classroom, which is somewhere in between maybe a mainstream and a progressive. There's still a lot of um, teacher scaffolding and teacher structure in place, but there's also a lot of freedom and choice. It was really interesting. The school where I ran it at wasn't an inquiry school, but the kids were during those uh, student government times almost running it like an inquiry they were bringing their own ideas in and like that's maybe fifth sixth seventh rung of the ladder of the ladder of participation they had a lot of choice they got to make a lot of decisions 
I'd be interesting, interested to speak to someone who's got more experience with high school and university level student governments because they then start to cross over more into um, especially more progressive education. They're more into what happens in the classroom. Whereas with, with, with you know, kids who are 11 years old, basically uh, some events some fundraising and some um, kind of equipment is, is plenty for them. They're not really generally going to step on the toes of the curriculum. But for me, a really positive experience in allowing more progressive or inquiry-based or agency-based education to happen within a mainstream school, almost like snuck in like a subversive kind of like you sneak in some agency into a mainstream kind of organization. As long as you're still doing your kind of, um, you're still hitting your maths curriculum objectives. It's seen as a great thing. I think it's celebrated inside a mainstream school as long as it, keep, it stays in its place. So um, if you're out there and, you know, you get the chance to participate in student government, uh, I would say go for it. And um, yeah, see if you can bring in a little bit more of that agency into places where maybe it doesn't exist as much. And using the latter model that we looked at, we can... You can dial up, you can assess where your school's at now in terms of its student council and then dial it up or dial it back as appropriate given the context. Cool. So next right. time we're going to be looking at break times. And again, you're probably, well, I'm thinking this and I'm projecting it onto the listeners. How are you going to create an entire episode about mainstream break times? But I have no doubt that once we get digging into the minutia, we'll be plenty to to discern here? I think so. The thing that I'm noticing about all of these is even if it seemed like somewhat of a blank canvas, like, oh, everyone does this, that once you start looking and digging slightly, those values come through, you know, strong. Hopefully today we've shown how those mainstream values of the, of the coach and the coach or the athlete and um, equality, transparency, goal setting, um, and all of those mainstream values come through in how student governments are run. And the same thing will be true of recess times or break times. So looking forward to it in two Earth weeks. And if you've been looking for it, here comes the nutshell, our five minute intro about what we're all about. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, Rob. And now time for the reinventing education, three types of school in a nutshell. If you're new to us, hopefully this is a helpful guide to navigate some of the terminology we use on our podcast. All right, so every school and every educator is in a tug of war, and we're pulled in three different directions. Each of the three directions has its own definitions about what makes for a good education. But this tug of war is difficult to notice. Because the three directions to education each use the same vocabulary, but each of the three directions has their own definitions for what that vocabulary means. So let's characterize these three approaches with the following names, traditional, mainstream, and progressive. And let's connect each to its relationship between a student and teacher. So traditional uses a master and apprentice model. Mainstream uses coach and athlete model. 
and Progressive uses a counselor and counseled model. Now, these three approaches to education would agree on the surface that education has the same three aims. Those three aims of education are for occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. However, each of the three approaches to school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, has completely different ideas about what occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development requires. So how does each of the three approaches to education meet the three aims of school? Well, with traditional master and apprentice, we see that the teacher is an expert and knows the one best way for students to achieve academic success and meet the three aims. In the mainstream, the Olympic coach and athlete model, the teacher works to assess and create each student's individual optimal way, balancing the effectiveness and efficiency to achieve maximum academic success in relationship to the curriculum to meet those three aims. And finally, the progressive, the counselor and counseled. The teacher and student negotiate the student's path to achieve their goals for academic success to meet the three aims. Each teacher will have a preference towards one approach, while the school itself may have an overall consensus, and this is where you'll find the tug of war. These three approaches not only define how an education is conducted in the classroom, but it also informs three different directions in terms of a school's organization, its culture, and its practices. The traditional master and apprentice requires a clear pyramid of authority, prioritizing security along with duty and tradition, putting trust in those in authority to uphold their duty for the integrity of the system. The mainstream coach and athlete uses a flowchart with a mobility for all, which serves as a flexible meritocracy of authority prioritizing achievement along with measurable progress and transparency towards meeting specific goals, putting the results of those in authority as important for the integrity of this system. And finally, progressive counselor and counseled uses horizontal leadership like a circle, prioritizing inclusion along with individuals' needs for meaning and empowerment, putting the personal and group significance as important for the integrity of the system. We often see tugs of war between how to organize the overall structure, either reinforcing the pyramid, a flowchart, or a circle. Each of these three types of school can be done well, somewhat effectively, or poorly, and each can suit a specific context better than the rest. Here on Reinventing Education, we believe it's better for a school to choose the type of school that best suits its students, staff, and community context, and do it to be high-functioning. Otherwise, the ongoing tug-of-war between the three approaches comes at the expense of time, resources, passion, and relationships, while not even ensuring that any of the three approaches is done well. Here on Reinventing Education, we are exploring the idea of the next type of school, a post-progressive approach to education that prioritizes the integration of these three previous types of school. Why? Well, an integration approach would seek a flexible and adaptive balance of the three previous approaches as an adaptive approach to inquire into and provide what is deemed a best fit for students, community, and the system in a given context to best meet those three educational aims of occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development 
as defined by those involved. The integration value attempts to maximize the gifts when appropriate of each approach to education while discerning how to minimize unnecessary drawbacks that are required when in wholly investing in doing one approach. In order to integrate the gifts of the three previous types of school, we need to know what we have to work with. So on our podcast, we're digging deep into these three types of school and trying to tease apart the babies and the bathwaters of each one.